We're in Ephesians chapter 1 here today. We're doing this brand new preaching series that Luke kicked off for us last week, and it's called Life Through God's Eyes. And here's our big idea. We, we want you to see things differently. God wants you to see him differently. God wants you to see other people differently. Your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, your work colleagues. He wants to give you God perspective on life. And here's something we want to talk about today. He wants you to see yourself differently. So we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1. Here's an idea for you, by the way, this week. Read Ephesians from beginning to end in one sitting. You will love it. I promise you. I've been doing it all of this week, just reading it, beginning to end, beginning to end. If you read it out loud, which has the benefit of you hear it and read it at the same time, so it's like twice as much, it takes 15 minutes to read from beginning to end if you read at my speed. If you read it in your head, it takes 10 minutes. So this is very, very achievable for all of us here. And it's like taking a shower. It feels so good when you read the book of Ephesians. It's just packed with truth. And you just feel hallelujah afterwards. So I want to get you to do that. Keep reading this book as we work through it together over these coming weeks and months. But right now we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people, it might say saints in your Bible, in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Lord, we just want to open up our hearts and our minds to you today. Thank you, you're a God who speaks. Lord, thank you, you haven't left us in the dark, but through your Son and through your Word. I thank you that you've turned on the lights, and I want to pray that you'd speak to us clearly. Help us to understand what you're saying through these verses. Grant us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to talk about you today. That's who this letter is written to. It's written to people. And Straight away, we can find an objection to that in the Christian faith. You can say, well, the problem with churches is they're, they're just so in on themselves all the time. They're, they're, people, churches, they're always talking about themselves. Shouldn't we really be talking about the world and how the world needs to be better and the world needs to be changed? Shouldn't Christians be focused entirely on that? I want to answer that very simply by saying most of the New Testament was written to Christians, yet the early church changed the world, as it was known, in phenomenal ways. I want to suggest that the way we get good at changing the world for Jesus is by understanding our identity in Christ. And if we know who we are, like these early Christians knew who they were in Christ, then this is going to be an explosive and wonderful thing for the world when that gets to hear about the gospel. If we understand the gospel, we'll get good at sharing the gospel. 
So Paul throws us into this letter with these amazing, amazing words. He says, to God's holy people in Ephesus. I don't know if you've ever started a letter with those words. I dare say you probably haven't. Here's something true about human beings. We fall in one of two categories. Some of us, we tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We tend to think of ourselves as just better than what we really are. The Bible calls that pride. But then a lot of us fall into the other trap, which is this. We think of ourselves too lowly, more lowly than God sees us. And it's interesting to note in the opening to this letter and in many of the letters of the New Testament, you find that Paul's understanding of Christian people isn't that they need to be pulled down, that they're thinking too much of themselves. It's this, that they're not seeing themselves correctly as God sees them. So he starts with this incredible statement. He says, to the saints in Ephesus, to to the holy people in Ephesus. And that word holy people is is a general inclusive word of all of the Christians that he's writing to right there. He's not talking about a special group. Somewhere in church history, that kind of connection got lost. And in the, in the way of celebrating Christians who'd done incredible things in their life for Jesus, somehow we started to call those people saints, and other people were somehow lesser Christians. Uh, in fact, let, let, let's just for a bit of fun. Who's this guy? Do you know who this one is? St. Nicholas. Nicholas. That's right. You might know him as Santa. Because... Um, uh, he, he, was, he was the guy, he, he lived in about 300 or so AD, and he went around secretly giving to the poor, those in need. He'd kind of sometimes put coins on window ledges so people wouldn't see him. He didn't want to be known for his giving. Clearly, somebody let the cat out of the bag. But um, he, he was renowned as being a really generous, generous man. And when he died, people say, wow, let's remember him. Because he's an inspiration to people. Anybody who was poor said, we loved that guy because he was so generous. That's what Jesus does in people when he changes their hearts. Who's this one? The next one. You know who this is? Trickier one. This is St. Jude. He's one of the original 12 apostles. And uh, he's pictured with an axe because he got beheaded for his faith. And he became a rallying point. People from all over the world came to visit his grave because they recognized that he'd got into a hopeless place where he'd ended up beheaded. And, and anybody who felt help, hopeless and helpless in their life, they took great encouragement from him. They said, well, you know, he ended up in a really dark place. Maybe I should remember him when I'm going through a dark place. He became, he's called, he's called the patron saint of lost causes. And uh, he's, he's a guy to take encouragement from when you're sitting your exams at the end of term and you haven't revised properly. Who's this one here? Anybody? more obscure one. She is Saint Apollonia, and she lived in 249 AD. She's the patron saint of dentistry. (laughs) Because uh, when she was standing up for Jesus, she got uh, attacked by an angry mob, and they knocked all her teeth out. And so anybody, somebody had had toothache, they said, I'm going to take encouragement that it's just one tooth. (laughs) Whereas she went through a lot more. But Here's the truth about saints. None of them started as saints. And none of us here today, by background, none of us would, nobody would look at any of us here and say, wow, they are so holy. Look at them. They're, they're, they're so amazing. In fact, the church in Ephesus, you can find its origins in Acts 19. You can flick there if you want, if you've got a Bible. And what you find is this, that anything 
but holy was this group of believers who Paul came to write to some time later. In Acts 19, you find that originally the crowd that he spoke to, it was a group of 12 men and they were posing as Christians. So Paul asks them a few questions like the membership interview, you know, and he says, so, so have, you, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, who's the Holy Spirit? He says, well, have you heard of Jesus? They said, no, I haven't heard of Jesus. You could call them Unitarians. They didn't really know anything about God. And so he leads them to know Jesus. And he leads them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how this church began, not with people who had great knowledge, but people who had very, very limited knowledge. Perhaps you feel that way today. And then added to that group was a a group of people who had an occult background. In fact, so many people got saved from an occult background that that they one day had a, a bonfire in Ephesus where all the people who had become Christians, they brought out all their Ouija boards and all their magical artifacts because they they said, we worship Jesus now, we don't do magic anymore. And they brought it all out and they set fire to it in Ephesus. And the writer of Acts in Acts 19 says that the total value of all that was burned that day came to 50,000 drachmas, which if you're not familiar with drachmas, that was about uh, between three and 10 million pounds in today's money. The London fireworks that happen at Hogmanay, by contrast, they cost £1.8 million every year. I want you to imagine what kind of bonfire that was in Ephesus that day. (laughs) It must have been the talk of the town. Incredible. But people who who came from witchcraft, people who came from occult, are now saying, well, I I love Jesus. Nobody would have called them saints. Nobody would have said how holy they are. They said, no, they were witches. Here's the third group you find in Ephesus. Idolaters, people who had worshipped statues. We know that because so many people became Christians from the, uh, the idol-worshipping world that the idol-makers started to go out of business. And a guy called Demetrius, he, he rounds up all the idol-makers and he says, this isn't good for our economy. He says, this is, this is not good. We're going out of business here. And so he starts a riot against the Christians in Ephesus. And he, he opposes them. So... Nobody would have said of these idol worshippers, gosh, you had a great background in God and you, you clearly started well in life. No, they, they'd turned to God. They'd turned to God. I'll, I'll let you know a little, uh, a little known fact about the town that I grew up in, Worthing, in Sussex. It's a tiny little sleepy place on the south coast of England. And nothing ever happens there. It's quite hard to run the local newspaper there because there are never any decent news stories ever in the Worthing Gazette and Herald, as it's called. And, uh, but here's, here's something, in 1874, sorry, 1884, the Salvation Army, which was a brand new church movement at the time, they started reaching out to alcoholics and people who were done in with life, and they started bringing them to their meetings, often in their inebriated state, they'd bring them and sit them on chairs and sober them up and preach the gospel to them and tell them about Jesus, and, and these people would begin to come to Jesus, and they'd begin to get sober, and they'd begin to leave alcohol behind, to the extent where all the pub landlords in Worthing got fed up and said, this is outrageous, this is affecting our economy, we're going out of business here. And so they started rioting, and the police and the government, they turned a blind eye to it, because they said, well, we don't want to get involved here. People got killed on the streets of Worthing, Salvation Army people, because they were seeing people saved. Now, here's this church in Ephesus. They'd come from all sorts of diverse backgrounds, None of them had holy backgrounds. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.11 summarizes what he feels about this church to a different church, but we could take the same words. And he says this, this is what some of you were. You were from all these different backgrounds, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So here's Paul's point. This was something that God did. This is something I want you and I to understand this morning. This is something that God does. How do you get to be part of God's holy people and take that title for yourself? The answer is this. You realize that you cannot do it by yourself. You need somebody else to make you that man or that woman. And verse 13 of Ephesians 1 that we read, uh, sorry, that we go, goes on from the verses we read. Paul says this, he says, You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth and the gospel of your salvation. This is how you get to be part of God's holy people. You get included. You get included by God in Christ when you hear the message. He says, remember in chapter 2, verse 12, if you're looking at Ephesians, it says, remember that one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God. In the world. He's saying, remember, you weren't this, but now you are. So what I want to do today is just draw something here to help us understand this. And, and this might seem quite simple for you. I know we're, we're well, un, well underway in terms of a new academic term and all of that, or it's just getting going. And uh, parents, you've started homework with your kids now, haven't you? You've probably done one of these. What is this? Oh, come on. It's a graph, isn't it? Wait, okay, it's two arrows pointing in different directions, but it's a graph. And on this axis here, we've got time. And on this one here, I'm gonna, we're going to call this holiness or righteousness. And let, let, just we get our parameters clear as we're, we're drawing this diagram together. If we were to plot in time... Jesus on this diagram. So all the years that Jesus lived on earth between when he was born and when he died, where would we position Jesus on this diagram? At the top, yeah. So the the Bible says there was no deceit in his mouth. He said, it says that uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sinful. Jesus was sinless. So this is Jesus at the top here. And he's, he's the benchmark. He's He's the perfect human being. Now, where would, again, just so we're clear what what the parameters are, where would we put Lord Voldemort? (laughs) Yeah, he's he's here, isn't he? So, Voldemort, down here, okay? And, uh, okay, here's the question. Where are you and I? We're, We're between these two, aren't we? And I guess we'd probably disagree exactly where we are, but my, my supposition, what the Bible would say is we're, we're actually down here somewhere, and some of us are a bit up here and some here. We, we tend to actually, we love to zoom in on things, don't we, in life, and, and if we were to zoom in on this, we actually love to compare ourselves not to the ultimate standard, but to the standard of those around us. So uh, I don't know if you ever do this, you find great comfort in the fact that... that 
actually, you're, you're not doing as badly as somebody else in life. And actually, it makes you feel slightly better about yourself. I remember when I first started work as an engineer, and I was working on a building site, and we'd have coffee breaks, and, and it was the usual sort of round of, sort of uh, chat about whose love life was in tatters that day, and all of that thing. And, and we were talking about somebody who had just split up with a, a boyfriend. And my, my boss, I remember him, he, he kind of just chuckled. And he said, he said, oh, well, he said, it always brings me great, great encouragement to know there's somebody for whom it's going worse than me. <laughs> but isn't that true, that we, we actually find ourselves comparing ourselves to one another? And we find security in that. If you're a... Let me illustrate it this way, football fans. I mean, any Celtic fans here today? Well, you, if you follow Scottish football at all, you'll know that Celtic have had an unbeaten run in Scottish Premiership. Of, I think it's 50, 55 matches. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, here's the thing. So compared with any other Scottish football team, Celtic, they are miles, miles, miles better. But what happens when Celtic goes to play PSG? <laughs> Five nil. Wow. See, it's when we take ourselves out of our own standards that we actually see what the true standard is. So therefore, as human beings, we must be careful. We don't just compare ourselves to other people. We need to compare ourselves to God, to Jesus. Now, this is what... These verses that we've read today teach us about what it means to be holy. So who's holy? Jesus is holy. Now, when Paul says to the saints at Ephesus, to the holy ones, what he's saying is this, that somehow, by some doing not your own, you get to live with this standard attributed to you. And he says to the faithful in Christ Jesus. It's to those who believe. That's the root of that word. It means those who have faith in Jesus. Here's the point. If you've put your faith in Jesus today and said, Lord, I'm not good enough in my own merit to be before you, but I'm going to receive your gift. This is what happens to you in real time. This can happen for you today. So here we are. You're living your life. The Bible says sinful from birth. We've been conceived in our mother's womb. We're, we're down here somewhere. And we're living our life. Maybe this was me, age 13. And this is what happened. I said, Jesus, will you come into my life? Will you forgive my sin? We read that in verse 7, the forgiveness of sins. This is what happened. Slightly unknown to me, if I'm honest. At that time, my holiness level before God went from zero to 100%. Now, did I suddenly change? Did my behavior entirely change in that moment? No. No, of course it didn't. Because I'm a human being. And I was a teenager. Now, the Bible talks about these two different things when it, when it, with regard to holiness. This one here, the, the, the theological word is imputed. And it means a righteousness, a holiness that comes from the outside in, given to you from the outside to you as a gift. And this is on the basis of which we relate to God. There's this other holiness, though, and we read about it in, in verse 13 of, of Ephesians that we read uh, this morning. It says, Verse 13, you also, can get this one up on the screen if we can, Ephesians 1.13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and the next bit as well, please, 
when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So as well as giving you a gift of 100% holiness, this is what happens with you the day you become a Christian. God puts his Holy Spirit in your heart as what? As a seal, a deposit, something guaranteeing what is to come. Now, what is to come is this, that we're going to live forever with God in eternity. And this is therefore what it looks like to mature as a Christian. That over years and over time, as we partner with the Holy Spirit in our lives, and it's our choice in that process, we get to become more and more like him. In this life, we'll never be fully like him. So uh, 1 John chapter 3 says, uh, says, when we see him, we will be like him. That work is complete when we get here. So here's what's being taught about you and me. That one day, not just in name, but in actuality, our behavior is going to match that of Jesus. Isn't that quite a statement to make about you and me? Not in this life. But in this life, we expect to become more and more Christ-like. We'll have disappointments and we'll have things that throw us off that course. But as we partner with the Holy Spirit, so we become more like him. And this is God's call on your life. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, it said, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God gives you a name and then he also gives you the power to change to become that name. When Jesus was born, they gave him the name what? Jesus. And what did it mean? Savior, because he'll save people from their sins. When Jesus was born, had he saved anybody at that point? No, he hadn't. You know, that was his name. That was his identity. He hadn't done it yet. He hadn't died on the cross and rose again. That was to come. God gives names prophetically. And when God calls you a saint, he does that because he's making a promise over your life that one day you'll be like Jesus. You'll be holy and blameless with him. So here's a truth for you today, that the limitations of your sinfulness are no obstacle to a God who can make you holy. I want us to grasp this truth a little bit more this morning, and I've... Uh, I've got four things to, to, to apply this to our lives, to help us grasp with it. We've, we read those verses saying that God has blessed us with every, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It comes back to that theme in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And it says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This stuff's hard for us to grasp because it can feel theoretical and distant. I want to try and help you connect with this today, because I think if we connect with this, here's the first benefit we get, that we get perspective on our life and what we're going through perspective. Let me ask you a question today. Where, where are you sitting? On, front row. on the front row. Okay, so I know you hate this participatory stuff, but <laughs> this is important that we declare truth together. So if your mum texted you now and said, where are you? should be reassured to know if you said, I'm sitting in King's Church, Edinburgh. Okay, 
So why don't we say that together? I'm sitting in King's Church, Edinburgh. Doesn't that feel good? You just confess truth. It's true. Look around. It's so true. We know it. Well, here's something that's no less true of you. That you're seated in heavenly places with Jesus. You're seated in heavenly places with Jesus. Can we say that together? Say, I'm seated in heavenly places with Jesus. One, two, three. I'm seated in heavenly places with Jesus. This is true of you right now. This is your standing before God. He's made you on a level before the Father where you can relate to God. Isn't that an amazing truth to think about? Now, how does that help? How does that help? It's, it just can sound so theoretical. I was, thinking, I was trying to apply this to myself. Well, how can I do this? How can I just be vulnerable before you for a moment and, and just tell you how this applies for me? And it'll apply for you in different ways. Here's something that I hope you, that some of you can connect with. If I, um, if I was to kind of look at my life and say, what's one of the things that just bugs me again and again in my life? Things that I don't like about myself and that just constantly I have to resist and kind of work through. Here's something for me. It's self-criticism. That I can just be harshly, overly critical on myself. And for some of you here, you think, I've never, ever done that. You, 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 for some of you, think, yeah, I do that from time to time. And at its extreme, I have to try keep this in bed, at extreme, I will wake up in the morning, on a Monday morning, and I'll be going through a message I preached yesterday, saying, yeah, what didn't go so well in that message? And, and here's the trouble. My mind in itself isn't powerful enough to overcome that narrative. So I wake up at five in the morning, and I start thinking, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have said that joke or that illustration or whatever it was. And I, can't, I just tell myself, stop it. Stop it and go back to sleep. My mind says, no, I'm not going to stop it. We're going to do it more. What I need is a different narrative. I need a different narrative. I need something from the outside to tell me, no, that's not who I think you are. And this is what these verses tell me. It says that there's a God in heaven who looks at my life and doesn't critique me, but he says, I'm holy. He says, I'm perfect because I'm in Christ. I'm in his son. This changes everything. Some of you need to change the record today. Some of you need to hear the narrative of God over your life, that he accepts you, he loves you, that you're holy in his sight because of Jesus. Paul knew what it was to have that narrative changed in his life. They said of him, the man who formerly persecuted the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. He was entirely changed from the inside out. So that's the first thing, you get perspective. Secondly, you love other Christians. When you grasp what it means to be part of the community of holy people called God's saints, you begin to love other Christians with a wonderful love. Ephesians 1.15, he says, Paul says, here's the thing about you, Ephesians, your love for God's people. How does this help? Well, because here's the thing. If we feel we're down here somewhere, then we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And that's no less true in church, believe it or not. You walk in and you, you figure out who's more spiritual than you, who's further ahead of you, who's behind you. Paul would say, no, 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 no. The most wonderful thing about the community of God is we're all holy. Therefore, we all love each other. We're not checking each other out. 
Here's something that I often see happens. People come into Kings and they're, they're making that sort of checking out thing. Where do I fit in here? And people wrongly assume and say, gosh, there seems to be a lot of spiritual people. There's a lot of people with their hands in the air. There's a lot of people who seem to be singing very confidently. Where do I fit in? And my answer to that question is, well, to be honest, in this church, you'll find people who have been here for, as Christians for a few weeks, a few months, a few years, a few decades. You'll find people who are loving everything about life at the moment. You'll find people who are really struggling with life at the moment. You'll find people who've, who are the pinnacle in terms of really moving ahead in faith. There's people who are struggling with their faith. And this is the community of God, but this is the community of which God says, you're my holy people. So whoever you are today, I want to say you're welcome here in Kings. Join this motley crew of all of us because we're all different. We're all in different places and you belong here. So come and be with us. We would love to be your family here. Here's the third thing. You delight to grow as a Christian. Here's what people worry about sometimes. If you over-preach this point that, hey, I'm right with God now. I don't need to do anything then people will get lazy. They won't do anything anymore. You won't be able to get anybody to put the tea and the coffee out and the chairs because, hey, I don't need to. God loves me. <laughs> the very opposite is true because what it seems to produce in the Ephesian church is a hunger and a love for God. Paul writes to me, says, so that you may know God better. And this is their heart. They want to know God. Ephesians 1, 18 19 says, I pray the, hearts of your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the, hope, know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is what happens when you understand that God loves you and you're holy. He begins to fill in all of the gaps in your life. And you think, well, I need more power. I need more help. I need more grace. I need more understanding. And God gives to you in the context of this community. Here's the fourth and final thing that happens. Is this that you love to be taught and equipped to serve. It says in chapter 4, verse 11, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is what happens when you realize your identity as being holy before God. That you don't look down on other people. Here again, here's the danger. You think, well, if I'm up here with Jesus, then, you know, everybody else is on a lower plane than me. You know, I, maybe others should be serving me here. The opposite is true. Just as Jesus served and gave himself for us. So as believers, we choose with this new identity to serve and love other people. And we're there to be equipped. We're there to be taught. We're there to learn. Every Christian has these big L plates on their front and back to say, I'm here to learn. And you find yourself in communities where Christian leaders, apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists, they work hard to make sure you become all that God has called you to be. Everything changes when you know who you are in Christ. And today I want to invite you into that knowledge. If you're, a, if you're not a Christian here yet today, this can change for you right now. 
you can leave here with 100% righteousness before God today. Some of you here are paralyzed by comparison to other people. We're kind of used to that in our teenage years, but that kind of goes on and on into the rest of life, and we, we compare ourselves. I believe today God wants to free you with this truth and for you to know that you're loved, that you're accepted, that there's nobody better than you in God's sight, nobody who's less than you.